0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesum, Chris, change of scenery. How are you yeah, doing today?
1: I'm in the living room, and I the sun is still, you know, there's, there's some light. It's been a beautiful blue sky day. Really sharp wind, though. I, I went out up the mountain in it, and several times... <laughs> several times, I, I didn't go all the way to the top this time, but several times I thought, I think I'm going to turn around because I'm very cold. <laughs> so, but I've gotten a lot uh, done uh, working away on, on many fronts. Feel pretty good. Feel pretty good. I was worried about you guys because I, I saw another tornado thing on the, on the map.
0: Well, we didn't have to worry about tornadoes this week. But what we did have to worry about was 60 mile an hour winds, which tomato, tomato, uh, because on, well, it was a really funny story. My dog, who's still holding on, was outside because I put her out for most of the day, mainly so that she doesn't go in the house, but also because it has had some really positive effects on her uh, cognizance and her mobility But I was in the room. I had just put Gus down. I've created this incredible hack for putting him to sleep, which is telling him that he doesn't have to go to sleep,
2: but I'm going to
0: (laughs) the the old pillow, the old pillow routine. That's a it's a delicate balance. Yeah, but I had I had just put him down and he had just gone to sleep. And I suddenly heard the wind pick up in a, a truly incredible way where the entire house was creaking. And my first thought was, oh, my God, is outside. I have to go rescue her. And I run to the glass sliding door, open it up, and I see in the corner of the yard a pile of leaves with her four paws sticking out of the leaves like a cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love
1: Kahlua. I'm so, so glad she's still around. Well, you know... I'm there comes a point when you think, look, 60 miles an hour, you know, you're starting to get into tornado country. I was on uh, walking around the shore of like Mead over the weekend. And, uh, you know, they have these kiosks out in front of uh, like if there's a, a, a latrine, not a restroom, a latrine. But uh, it had, uh, you know, sometimes they have, you know, pictures of vegetation and, you mm-hmm. know, desert tortoises and stuff. Well, this was a boating safety one and it had a gauge of... Um, The Well, kind of the Beaufort scale of wind, Mm -hmm. you know, going up to gale force winds, major gale force winds. And at the far right of the spectrum, someone had written in, run home as fast as you can. You know, that was, you know, that was the extreme Mm -hmm. end of the wind thing. So Mm -hmm. I am with you. I'm so proud of my uh, psycho psychedelic house for how it holds up in the wind because we we had a dust storm here uh i can't remember what day it was it was just so awful but the mountains disappeared behind me and that is saying a great deal because the mountains like start outside my door mm-hmm. and all of the the mountains around this valley were completely gone of course late gone it was just like oh you know, and you <laughs> you know, there's just nothing you can do. Goggles nothing. help you, you know?
0: No, yeah. Yeah. No, I, we used to have dust storms a lot in El Paso, obviously, because the wind doesn't even have to be very fast to cause a dust storm, but occasionally about once or twice a year, you would be driving on the highway and you would just have to stop. Everybody has to stop and wait for it to pass because the visibility is zero. Uh, with the windstorm here, it blew a few shingles off of my roof. And I didn't notice that until I was out with my push reel mower and my neighbor who's in his seventies, who's just gotten a new mutt that he informed me, his grandchildren picked out for him. He said, uh, Hey, I said, Hey, he said, you see what the wind did to your roof. And I looked, (laughs) I said, I said, well, shit, no, I didn't see that. I'll have to tell the owner. And then he said, uh, I'm diabetic. And I said, okay. And he said, they say that having a dog is good for diabetes. (laughs) I
1: said, David, (laughs) keep that in mind for tonight's or or this episode's imaginative challenge. Okay. I will. You're syncing up already. It's Mm -hmm. it's
0: easy.
3: It's mm-hmm. me, you,
0: know, I can feel you i don't want to skip all the way to the end we'll get to it in the dream segment but already from listening to the dream that you sent to me um there have been some very interesting sinks and connections there um which i've just i'm beginning to find not just with you i mean with a lot of my friends we seem to be psychically and how should i put this the the rivers of our lives have seemed to meet and we are succeeding and failing at the same times and in the same measure it's very strange it's very strange we all have different stories but they're following the same tune
1: yeah well look any kind of resonance or echo or path of energy is 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 mysterious you know you can get some glimpses at it and i think this is one of the ways to think of the whole lost explorers project is trying to get glimpses of those that happen within ourselves the community of our own mysterious being but then the the pirate radio community of uh more material you know friends absolutely the action at a distance and that whole notion of distance, which is, uh, I mean, in and of itself is a very, very dubious idea that that, you know, really that needs tremendous prosecution. Because uh, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it's very odd if you just well, like anything, I think if you leave anything unexamined,
0: you, you've you got something weird on your hands, you know? Yeah, something I was just know about When you were talking about your house, your psychedelic house, and how close it is to the winds, I was thinking about it, and I was picturing it in my mind, and I was following the road to your house, back to the highway, and I had this whole quick, remember that Madonna video, Ray of Light, where it's just a camera going really fast down the road, uh, back to where I was here, and it was kind of a cool imit like it was a cool vision of the quote unquote distance between us as we're speaking right now
1: well i think distance is a great way to think of the theme for this episode because it's all about distance in one way or another you know oh i'll
0: be i'll be reading your text again but first we have some things to get to do you have a band yeah,
1: I am I'm, I'm keeping with my uh sort of deconstructionist uh primitive uh caveman space age sort of notion. We had last time or a couple of times the an all deaf, profoundly hearing impaired. Whack. Yeah. And I and you said, look, that just can't be taught. Well the group this time is called the control group as in a psychological study. And they are not just radical, really homemade analog synthesizers. And I'm fooling around with some of that myself. And it really gets back to the golden days of ham radio and You know, your friend's dad with a beer belly and wrenches and shit lying on the floor for cars. It's messy and strange. And yeah, it's electronic, but it's pretty funky. And so that's their thing. But they also are united in a commitment. They have all seized as their identity artificial intelligences mm-hmm. they all identify as AIs and insist upon being treated and pronounced as one would an AI what is the pronoun for an AI whatever it wants it to be
0: <laughs> so like a person
1: yeah Ex- mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> can't fool you. You were not hiding behind the door. Uh, mm-hmm. It was all handed down. So the name of their album, and this is a little bit of a riff uh, on Guns and Roses' "Monster." First up, algorithms of destruction—not mm. for destruction, but of destruction. I like and that. And their lead piece of music slash song is, is in this that same sort of fun spirit. Take this satisfaction survey or die. <laughs> and so they're they're working out on this really twisted thing of on the one hand, absolute guts and wires super primitive synth Mm -hmm. stuff. And yet this insistence on this post-singularity identity of being AIs. And in their case, of course, they they see it as a collective AI as well.
0: Right. Right.
1: They're tapped in.
0: That's really interesting. I like the idea of people. Well, I don't like the idea, but I like conceptually the idea of people. Thinking of themselves as AIs because I think this might be your most prescient band yet. Because we're going to be doing this show three years from now, and I'm going to say, Chris, you're not going to believe this, but there's a band now that identifies themselves as artificial intelligences.
1: Oh, I'm so I think you're right. I, I, I there's almost you could put Vegas money on it, I think, mm-hmm. really,
3: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. And in some maybe can- that'll
0: be the next thing. Maybe that'll be the next thing once they get tired of the current trend. Maybe it'll be, you know, Donna Haraway will have a renaissance, and and the cyborg will become the next, the next big, fight cultural fight over cyborg acceptance.
1: Well, I think it could happen in the in the Vegas dance clubs because. Mm-hmm you—it's—it's it's, The math is not complicated. You get these big name uh, DJs like this guy, Tiesto. Well, that's a quarter million
0: bucks for a weekend. I, I listened to Tiesto this weekend. Did you? Okay. <laughs> I like that. I like that silly dance that boom, boom, boom,
3: boom.
1: boom. Oh, man. I, I I I'm officially too old for that stuff because I just cannot deal. But I mm-hmm. think it would be very easy to replace him in some strategic way and save maybe not a full quarter million, but something, something. Mm-hmm. Although I we did talk well now, but I think that might be where the change happens, you know, where we just mm-hmm. go,
2: you know. There is no need for talent, you know right it's right messy. We'll I think so everything.
0: I think so I think so right now we are in the the sweet spot. I have a job interview on Friday, and my entire process for getting to this job has been using chat GPT to generate my emails for me. Are you kidding? What's the yeah. job? A copywriter for a bank so working on billboards and I'll ask more about it during the interview, but my impression is that I'm working on ad copy for a bank.
1: Well, that's a, I, I've done that, you know, and yeah. I, ad copy, it's, you know, it's interesting, you know, there was a time when some really great minds and great writers worked in advertising. I mean, James Dickey and Hart Crane come to mind very quickly. Um, and Dr. Seuss was the art director on right. the flick insecticide right.
0: account for
1: 17 years right
0: right i've seen those drawings where he was it, it's proto dr seuss style it's basically what you would eventually see in his books those types of weird ostrich and giraffe like characters but for the brand
1: it, it's it's a great profile in in mental health evolution or devolution depending mm-hmm. on no
0: i i i'm agnostic in my feelings about about the job i will be excited to have a consistent stream of income and it will facilitate my ultimate goal of bringing rios home so that i can be the one who goes to work i'm going to continue my editing on the weekends and you know fully support the family while she works uh on her books and her, she's teaching some writing. She's teaching one right now for uh, Lydia Yuknovich's corporeal writing. So she's got a class going on with her and uh, she's got two or three coming up. But I really do think that she has a a, a very deep talent for being a, a kind of writing workshop instructor. But as you know, all too well, that's not exactly a job that it pays. And it's one that you have to do quite often in order to get to where you can charge the big bucks for it. So I'd like to, I'd like to help her with that. And I get a kick out of <laughs> kind of going back to traditional gender roles in terms of homemaker and Money maker, you know
1: yeah well the, the the lawnmower keeps coming up there's there's some dad furnishings that that are yeah. popping yeah. up there yes yeah, this, yeah that's it I, I get all that's
0: that it. that's it and I and I have I've loved I've loved the two years that I've spent with Gus they've changed me in a way that I'll never be able to change back um but I think that you know, going forward, I think it's just, you know, I grew up with my mother, not my father, and I'm a good father, but there's an there's a feminine energy that I think young kids need to be around, um, and I think that the more – because he and I, we do talk, but we spend most of the day just kind of doing our th- – and we'll go outside, and we don't really – we don't talk a whole lot. I'll say, I'll tell him the names of things like, oh yeah, that's the chain link fence, or that's the fire hydrant, or don't go in the street. But I'm not sitting there going, Who's the biggest boy? Who's the handsomest boy?
1: you you do a pretty good take on that. Just <laughs> that. look, I, I've got to object and say I, I'm my strong vibe here. Is first of all a little bit of E minor and only thirty six Christmases left, sort of whistfulness, mm-hmm. which is a bit of a concern. But I think it's a very good thing for you to start getting out of the house. I really mm-hmm. do.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
1: I haven't ever. I haven't thought that so much. But I think that that. Uh, but you also sound a little bit like um, I don't know. An elementary school age kid, but sort of that those that last week of summer, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. a little bit uncertain, mm-hmm. wanting to sort of go back to school, but kind of, you know, <laughs> you're, you're sort of in the doorway there. Mm-hmm. Well, I wish you luck with the interview. I hope that turns out whatever way you, you feel would be best.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that. Do you have an aphorism for us today?
1: I've got several. Because okay. I've just been in that kind of mood. And also, they're, they're weighted in different ways. But I think this one is just worth saying, because it occurred to me very, very physically. I've got a lot of masks around me, as you know, and I make masks. And so there's like a lot of masks around. Um, and it occurred to me, so this is number one, wear a scary mask and you might scare yourself. It's true. It can, it Mm -hmm. can actually happen. It sounds stupid, but it's true. Next one. Again, this sounds simple, but I don't think it is. The time zone that everyone wants to live in is the one that's hardest to find. Mm. We've talked about time zones. You brought that up a few times. Then I defined time because I thought we needed a new definition. Mm. Time equals the creation of novelty and pattern, and I think that that uh, Terence McKenna and William Burroughs would be would be interested in that. And I think that crucial and conjunction, you know, conjunctions often really are kind of cheats. I think, but here I think it's really important: novelty mm-hmm. and pattern. Mm-hmm.
3: Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: And then closing it off. What we mean by poetry in a literary sense is the psychological effect of words that peak and sometimes percolate through the lattice wall of language from the deep wild beyond and before.
2: Mm, mm
0: -hmm. That's a good one. That's a really good one. I also, I'm, I'm still thinking about Time equals the creation
2: of novelty, and pattern. I do like I'd like that. I'm putting
0: it into my brain right now. So well time... thank you because
2: these the, what I'm
1: striving for with the aphorism uh, genre, mm-hmm. perhaps with the exception of the last one, which is a little bit more detailed, are like the tips. Things that sound relatively simple, but yeah. do allow and encourage and kind of invite unpacking. You know, there there's, mm-hmm. there seems to be
2: more to them, even though they're satisfyingly simple at first presence. I but, wonder if I wonder if it's finding. Because novelty is an interruption of a pattern, and pattern is the baseline of the solid mass that's around us. And sorry, I'm rambling, but I'm getting my head around that one. And
0: so a novelty would be a disruption in a sort of static pattern. What do you think about that?
1: Well, I think that's uh, I have I have something uh, quite pointed to think about and say about that. But before what you the way you broke that down, it's really worth calling people's attention to because it's it it's very difficult to teach this. And but some people just cotton on to it and, and get it. But when you took, and this is this is part, a beginning part of what I mean by dimensionalizing the rhetoric of linear concepts and phrases. Right. Instead of taking that sentence, which which I phrased as an equation and kind of just drawing a single line from that, you dimensionalize that by first querying the terms. You know, really mm-hmm. looking at novelty, not taking that as just flattened into that two-dimensional line, but mm-hmm. saying what is the, what is what does novelty? Getting a definition for that, a definition then for pattern. So already we've got those things offset. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. if you were doing it like a table of contents, you would have two indents. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And yeah. that starts to break the spell of pure linear consumption of language and ideas and that's really really important
3: i um, think
0: that i think that uh when you wear a scary mask you might end up scaring yourself would be a really good meme <laughs> with, a, with like a scary mask on it i think that that could be cool Sackness of, well you kind of do memes don't you
1: yeah, I'm going to start cranking them out again. I, I I really have fun with it. I think it's a great uh, it's a great discipline. I've used that that as, as a, a graded assignment uh regularly in when I've taught professional writing. Because mm-hmm. I think you can do memes, you can do billboards, you can do a lot of of work in advertising. Mm-hmm. You know? we mm-hmm. should think about that too if the bank thing comes through. Um sure. very, you know, text and image and Never the twain shall meet, and yet never will they divide ever again. Really, mm,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: very important to get those. I, together.
0: I have such a long digression. I was thinking about memes during a, a drive today, but I'm going to table that for now because I'd like to know what my imaginative challenge is for the. Okay,
1: day. well, this is I. I'm I'm pulling out some real stops
0: this time. I
1: just I'm in the mood. I'm in the living room. It's there's still a hint of light out. Uh, the working title here is Hunting the Soul of America. And I've written you a little bit of an intro uh, okay. just to get you started, kind of like John Coltrane's intro to Johnny Hartman singing My One and Only Love. You know, this gives you a little bit of background. So here it is, because you've been encouraging uh, more writing. And I've been working on so many different uh, styles. But here we go. Terence Sundog Lattimore woke in rheumatoid arthritic distress to haul his white-haired former USMC bones to the bathroom for still more prostrate-challenged urinary relief. And it struck him hard looking at the mirror, a clear, cold, complete realization He didn't look dangerous to anyone anymore. He didn't look heroic. He didn't even look like he could be of much, if any, help. That's great camouflage, he said aloud to the old Marine in the mirror. He realized he could sell his house and take Wally, his loyal Labrador in the airstream and hit the American road. With some planning and alertness, he could commit a murder or save a life every week for a year and not get caught. A flip of his magic silver eagle, silver dollar would decide the difference. He'd head out on the highway hunting the soul of America. Big Bend National Park seemed like a good campground to start his new and last life mission as an angel of death or deliverance. So your assignment is just to take us to Big Bend National Park and that first critical week and flip of the coin. I think I think if you can get us there, that will be
2: a very good job. If you can I, go further and farther. Bah. I love it. I love this. Okay.
0: Good. This is cool. He's like uh, Marine Corps Anton Chigurh yeah. with his coin. Yeah, that's yeah. cool, man. I dig it. Terrence Sundog Lattimore.
2: He you're in it so you're in it and look Lattimore you
1: could do the boys you could you've got a great ear for you know it's uh yeah.
0: it's good i like that i really admire that in people i see what you mean about the diabetic now about yeah the, that's because that's who i'm picturing in my head he doesn't have a labrador he's got a complete mutt with a brendel coat but otherwise that he's got the usmc hat and everything um, All right. Here is the text that and I, I, I like this as a continuing segment. My main body notes for tonight. Architecture and the spirit of the Kiva, Oh and I'm sorry, architecture and the spirit, the Kiva, cathedrals, the great English churches, Sheldrake's focus on pilgrimage, the House Tamborans of New Guinea. Coleridge, quote, it mingled strangely with my fears, yet it felt like a welcoming. Mosques, synagogues, places of worship, churches as centers of deep community. Asterisk, inclusion, war of the worlds, London bomb raids, disaster movies, people go to churches in times of calamity, prohibitions on sex and ecstasy. Think of ancient temples, black churches, Open secret of sexuality, parentheses, hetero. LGBTQ issue with religion, but more importantly, with the emergent, quote, religions of leisure and consumption. Ludicrous irony of Las Vegas is, quote, Mecca of entertainment. Contrast with Coney Island at the Dreamland era peak of its appeal, Disneyland in the 1960s. <laughs> Destructions of the wilderness destruction of the wilderness creates parks, which eventually become theme parks. Destruction of spirit practice creates shopping malls, nightclubs, and casinos. I fucking love that. When you destroy the parks, it the the theme park, the theme park is built on the corpse of the park. And as such, the shopping mall, the nightclub, and the casino, you know, this is a, a focus of mine. Maybe one day I'll write about strip malls um or shopping malls in this case is the yeah it's the perfect analogy theme parks are to parks as shopping malls are to the spirit palace that makes such intuitive sense to me it almost doesn't feel like it needs to be elaborated on but i say all that to say chris episode 147 of lost explorers what would you like to talk about today
1: yeah well thank you for reading that I do I'm, I'm really having fun with those notes and I'm loving your show notes that you're providing mm-hmm. uh to listeners uh when every show drops because I think they're they're just fantastic and uh they speak to this sort of kaleidoscopic kind of malarial uh mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. fragmentary sort of tilt rural approach but they're, they're very, very accurate and fair. So I think maybe we should um, follow with this theme, mooted of architecture and the spirit, because we've been talking about architecture. Last uh, time we spoke about architecture and time, and I thought that was uh, really, really cool. Um, even for people who aren't as quite as as just jazzed about architecture as you and I are. Um, But a a friend of mine who is an architect, and I don't get to uh, chat very often, not as often as I'd like, really thought that was an important insight and something to further explore. And it ties into a lot of stuff we've been talking about of how time, space, memory, imagination, and sociality all converge maybe, and maybe not, maybe not. But I thought that the one way to think about um, the, how architecture and the spirit might work as an idea is to think about what we said last time, and this was a cool realization in real time on the show that the house or one's dwelling could be thought of as a time shelter. And I think that there's something really in that. So what would architecture that speaks to the spirit, how would that then relate to time? Mm -hmm. And does it have anything to do Mm -hmm. with managing distance as in space? you know you started off the in our first episode on architecture you were talking about john lautner's notion of disappearing space mm-hmm. and i still think that is just so important and so difficult to well inherently difficult to visualize but architecture and the spirit seems to me to be managing distance between the private secret psyche of individuals their conscious working, public selves the society or culture however large that is that they're working in and then however they're processing what might be called the cosmic or universal what whatever mm-hmm. they think lies beyond the the social frame and I think frankly one of the defining, factors or or characteristics of our time right now is that people have less and less of an idea about that level whether you call it cosmic or universal or whatever I think they are pretty well fixated and restricted by the social sphere uh, which has been heavily augmented of course by technology and the internet but when I if we say that 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 architecture in the spirit suggests sacredness. And we have, I think a lot of people would be familiar with the idea of a sacred space, often metaphorically applied. I wondered, my first question to you was, what distance do you see, to use that
2: framework, between the notion of sacred space and physical architecture. While I think about that, just a quick question. How often do you think about
0: the the vastness of space in terms of the cosmos or in simple earth terrain geography
2: while you are inside of your house? Personally, quite a bit, quite a bit, yeah. quite a bit. I
1: I see the house really as a spaceship. Mm-hmm. Uh, I often jokingly refer to that, or the the term a Trom machine, you know, German for dream,
3: mm-hmm. kind
1: mm-hmm. of a, a a time machine, but also a spaceship. Uh, I I think about that a great deal because, but I don't think a lot of people do. <laughs> I don't. I don't think a lot of people do. I think that there are. There is a sense, um, you know, and this fil- this falls under the the category, the very very big category of the plurality of worlds idea, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which in hi- the history and philosophy of science is quite rich. And the first thing that you learn is there's a plurality of pluralities within the plurality of worlds idea. Yes. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. And, and so, I think. That, go ahead. Well, you could look around like I have neighbors, for instance, who have a, a degree of not just it would be unfair to say clutter because theirs is hyper is organized. They might be collectors of those mm-hmm. little sort of Hummel figures or, you know, <laughs> but you know I'm thinking of, of two older women who just they're meticulous curators of a museum that makes no sense to me whatsoever, but clearly demonstrates a plurality of worlds underlying idea, because they would see enormous difference in shades of meaning and degree and history. You know, they're they're wunderkamers. They're, They're cabinets of curiosity, just in a different register. I understand the inclination, just not that particular language.
0: That's very helpful to me. I was wondering how you how you thought of your your home. I like the idea of seeing it as a kind of spaceship or or an earthship. Um, because I don't think that I see it that way, but I would like to. I think that when I'm in my home, I tend to become very concerned with matters of the interior. The home, for me, is a place for pacing and ruminating and reflecting. And I have to sort of get outside to be reminded of things like the sky and the stream that we have down the way. Uh, but that's very helpful for me. I think I think many people might think about their homes more in the sense that I do uh, and not in the way that you do, which I'll reiterate, I think is the ideal. Um, in terms of the distance between So the question you had asked is the distance between sacred space and physical space that people are put into. The first thing that comes to mind is um, mosques per your text message. But that was also the first thing that came to mind while talking to you. This jives really well with something that I've been thinking about recently as I've been trying to practice a Taoist negation of the ego and the self in order to become more uh, in touch or part of the three-dimensional space around me. And I've been thinking a lot this week about in terms of um, when you externalize and when you uh, begin to notice and inhabit the space around you. I live in a very humble suburb we've got some great elm trees we've got a good stream once you do that you actually begin to think less and less of the of the self and you i find that i'm able to get more uh of my hobbies done of my work done i'm able to be more present once i'm i'm out of there and the sacred space for me works at its best when it uh to go back to one of your aphorisms to act as a, a kind of novelty pattern interrupter, uh, especially those mosques because they essentially look like the fractal patterns of a DMT trip. And yeah. as, as beautiful as they are, they are also very specifically, uh, lacking in any kind of, um, any one thing that you're supposed to intensely focus on. There's so many colors and shapes and designs and things of that nature. And the movement of the eye when looking at the ceiling of one of these mosques is very similar to uh, the way that, you know, you don't want that blood to congeal. You want it flowing. You don't want the river to stagnate. You want it to keep moving. So I wonder if, the sacred in terms of novelty. And I'm thinking very specifically of my wife's kind of magical altar that is adorned with all sorts of trinkets and crystals and, uh, you know, little basins for, for candles and things of that. The eye is constantly moving when Mm -hmm. you are in the presence of that altar. I wonder if that, uh, that kind of physical space is meant to, create a movement right because the spirit can only appear when things are are moving and as a final note it really kind of makes the the blank walls single cross on the on the (laughs) on the Presbyterian church uh uh you know stage uh I think that's why I never vibed with that sacred space growing up because it was really boring
1: for for pure aesthetic reasons interesting exactly well yeah. I you know I think that's uh, one of the arguments for insane gargoyles and stained glass windows right right that, Catholics you know, are good at this right Catholics you know, are really it's, good at what uh, we're talking it, about. it's it's a strange deal there but I, I think that
2: um, the the combined because it is a multimedia strategy.
1: The entire mosque situation and it's the, the mosaicing and abstract fractal intensity is exactly aimed to do what you said to really overwhelm in a very special kind of way and the color registers you know you think of that particular blue that probably comes to mind it's the the power of that and the resonating intensity of the colors and the patterning and then that finds the most just inexplicably appropriate analog in the music and in mm-hmm. the very the strangely characterless yet enormously rich quality of of the singing yeah. and echoing and the prayer time sense i mean it's just when I think of it in terms of a of a pretty mellow country generally like Malaysia, I would find it very hard to resist if I live there. I think it's it's that powerful. I don't think I feel that way about some Middle Eastern examples of it, but uh, that's more, you know, just personal choice. But I think it's an immensely powerful
2: formula of mm-hmm. of uh, multimedia. spectacle of a kind, I think it it does
1: fall in, I mean, there is a theater to it. There's a magical, sacred theater to it. And that seems to me to be very difficult to arrange in one's own space. I think the best mm-hmm. that you can do at home is like Rios's altar or, you know, my sense of the psychedelic spaceship or my neighbor's crazy, you know, little figurine, uh, right.
0: You know? Oh, wow. Wow. Two thoughts, two thoughts. Yeah. The first thought is you mentioned that, uh, uh Arabic, uh, Muslim music. And yeah. as a funny side note, I'm not sure what watch lists this put me on, but for a time, I was obsessed with the song, uh, my Uma Dawn has come, uh-huh. which is the ISIS theme song. <laughs> it's so beautiful. It's one of my, it's one of my favorite songs. And uh it's just Do you very hard. Mike Oldfield's. What's that? By Mike Oldfield? No, the uh the uh the the ISIS, you know, like the, the terrorist group, they're, they're okay.
1: The real yes. Yeah. That's basically
2: yeah, yeah an
0: ancient is just yeah, yeah, yeah. My my don has come is uh is really beautiful. Um the second thought that I had, why why did I lose this thought? What were we just oh my goodness.
2: Well, Middle Eastern, Arabic, North African music.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh man, no. Where did it go? It was. I'm a good sorry, one I, too. I might have distracted that. No, 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. Um, it's been a busy week. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to come back to that because I I'm not sure. Well, while
1: going. With, while you're thinking, I'll just throw in that the uh, the world musician Don Cherry. Who famous for his little pocket trumpet, but but many many mastery of many African instruments. He does some really cool meshes of Middle Eastern, North African, and West African music, and then also just some great uh, Arab and 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 North African music just generally. It's just absolutely fantastic. And mm-hmm. it it the other another version another sort of side to that is the Dervish music.
3: Yeah, you know, yeah.
1: That's strange. I mean, think of that—that's so crazy. I mean, that's a Sufi thing, but that again is like a, a the sacred finding ceremonial form, not merely architectural form. But then, if you think about it, I mean, architecture is 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 ceremony in material form. It's enduring ceremony. And I think that's where it emerges around the world, because it's always a public space. You know, the really quiet chapels and that sort of that that private, intimate sense of worship and meditation that happens. Yes. And it's really important. I think it's really cool. But you've got public spaces, you know, the Hopi Indians, the Kiva, um, the you cathedrals, we've we've talked about some of, I still think it's just blown away. We were talking about the hunchback of Notre Dame because it has been so long since I thought of that. That came up last time for people who missed it. Um, And also, you know, the great English churches, and that made me think of one of our heroes, Rupert Sheldrake. Have you caught up with it? I mean, he he is a, a Christian in addition to being, practicing scientist and although richard dawkins you know has issues with him uh we certainly don't and think he's kind of a hero but in some of his later books he's been talking about spiritual practices in the scientific intellectual life
0: oh no i didn't know that that's cool
1: yeah that's you know he kind of he did a, a real debunk of scientism The Science Delusion, it was called here, I believe. I think it had another title in the UK. He did a beautiful teardown of Dawkins and Fauci and science as a social belief system rather than a skeptical and open-ended inquiry of self-correcting knowledge gaining over time and an appreciation of mystery. Uh, Once he got past that, and that was beautifully done. A beautiful takedown. Seven points that he goes through. A couple of good videos on that too. One which was canceled by TED Talks and then they forced it back in. But his his book on his he's got two now, I think, on spiritual practices. Look at some things that are really practical for families, ordinary families, to to follow. Uh, and one of the the um he talks interestingly enough about the importance of sports which i think is very very unusual and kind of shows just how lateral uh his great mind is but he talks about the joy of pilgrimages and what has become kind of even a very popular secular movement in the uk because there are you know quite a, a a number of really fabulous churches more than 30 you know, way more, mm-hmm. and there are maps of them. So people join together as groups, and rather than say walk the Appalachian Trail, they do the the Great Churches of England as Ooh. a walking tour. And young people have really gotten onto this. This is one of the, I learned this from Sheldrake, that um, I didn't know that. I think it's enormously uh, powerful, and he and his family do it, and for them it is part of, of religious practice course in larger spiritual practice, but they've gone with good friends who uh, are completely agnostic. And the pilgrimage experience, it's not just having a destination and goal. I mean, there is that, and that is a, a, a valuable technique. You can do that with treasure hunting or a sport like mm-hmm. orienteering. I'm sure some of that, you know, that's an underlying grammar. Absolutely. But the notion of going to these beautiful, uh, austere, but welcoming architectural achievements that are effective unconditionally in creating the psychic experience they were intended to. uh, A quiet, a calm, a respect, uh, a connection with oneself, and a larger, you know, universal divine sense, but also a very strong connection with the social group, the gathering at any given time. And as is, is part of, of that section of his books, he's also an advocate for uh, the fact that even song is recorded and, and streamed from some from several of these churches with beautiful voices. You know, they're not always Welsh choir voices. God love the Welsh. I don't know if anybody could sing better in a choir sense, except a Black Baptist choir. But these beautiful, even song, uh, ceremonial singing that can be shared in real time via streaming. And this is another of his points that, you know, if we're going to have this technology do weird things to our sense of space and time, maybe regain a little sovereignty and really really make streaming in real time work, you know, when it's super important. So I think that's kind of cool. And I think this is maybe where the future of these uh, physical structures and facilities are around the world, because, uh, well, we know that that religion is on the decline in America Um, and, I don't think that any secular um, creation, whether it be a theme park or a movie palace and think of the great movie palaces of the past, a few, which survive, thankfully. Now they were really trying to be something, trying to be Mm -hmm. something inspirational for the average working person, glorious, glorious, completely unnecessary, uh, embellishments and thematic, just cherubs or Greek gods or who knows what. None of those really can match these great sacred spots around the world. And I, I think it's not a Eurocentric, certainly not an American, but not Eurocentric at all. I, Cause you know, we we've both seen this across Asia. I mean, it's, it's, a universal human, global mm-hmm. human idea, I think, of creating these spaces. And that's why I wanted to share with you the beautiful, I, I don't know if you've seen that before, the beautiful design of the house tambourines or spirit houses in New Guinea. Uh, they um native to the Sepik the River region. They're just these phenomenally, mm-hmm, spiked, mm-hmm. almost like sailboats sort of shaped. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. They, they, Soaring
1: high roofs, 30, 60 feet high, coming to kind of a cantilevered point with a, a sail-shaped opening. And inside, of course, is... Well, it's it's beyond a museum, it's beyond a church, it's beyond a library, it's and beyond a graveyard. It's it's all of that in one as a rich collection of masks, shields, story uh boards, just amazing artwork that can be both um, oh, this is an interesting way to think about what you were talking about earlier, that that sin is that. It has an instantaneous impact. Yeah. That's undeniable. And yet, and yet, the mind, spirit, heart, soul of an individual who's in tune with this can somehow appreciate exactly at the same time and register that what is transparent and totally unquestionably powerful also has dimensions upon dimensions that need interpretation and that
0: could benefit from more understanding, you know?
3: Mm, mm, mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, a sense of mystery, a a sense of quiet when you walk into some of these big churches, I think is important. Many different um, sort of different vestibules to go to. By the way, did you notice that when you said the word soul, you put your hand on your stomach?
1: No, I didn't. Sort of I did.
0: Neither here nor there. But um, I thought that was interesting because you did your well, heart. I and mean it's said not you know,
1: it's kind of I meant sort of like the hole, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. I thought not here. You...
1: Definitely not my head. Definitely not yeah, my
0: head. Yeah. You know,
1: more <laughs> yeah. more torso, sort of yeah. thorax.
0: It would be funny if you pointed to a very specific place, like on your clavicle. You were like the soul. I'd be like, that's oddly specific. For that. But no, I'm thinking about when I was growing up in Germany. We lived by Eder Oberstein, which was the uh, sort of rare mineral and crystal capital of Germany because of all the mines that are there. And there's a place there called the Church in the Rock. And the lore of that place is that uh, a rich young man, perhaps he was a prince, wanted to marry a woman. And the woman decided to marry his brother instead. So he took his brother up on this cliff sightseeing and pushed him off, murdered his own brother. And as penance for his sin, he began to chisel this church out of the rock face and you can go visit it. It's really amazing. It's very small, but it's an actual church with about uh, four rows of pews and some nice alcoves with, you know, saints and things of that nature in there. And I remember, going into that <clears throat> going into some uh some other big churches uh, sort of in that in that area and having a kind of echoing sense of it being inhabited by something and i often i wonder if uh those kind of spaces because of what they do to the psychology of the person to the spirit of the person i'm putting my hands on my stomach as i say that Uh, I wonder if that isn't just a constant matter of reflection where it becomes like this hall of mirrors where that energy keeps getting bounced back and forth in that way and actually begins to have some sort of resonant oscillating vibration on the level of the field.
1: Well, you know, if, I wonder if if the metaphor could be tuned up rather than just you know the energy bouncing off and just mm-hmm. kind of bounding around, kind of like uh, you know that that wonderful old video of uh, mouse traps with ping pong balls, and then they mm-hmm. go, off, you know, uh, which is cool to watch. But uh, I think maybe a more uh, when you said that, I thought like a, the like a second generation night vision device, Mm. like a starlight scope, which is effectively, you know, a a tube of electrons where the light comes in and at each level they're stimulated, but the stimulation rises. It's amplified as it reaches your eye. So there's a real sort of amplification of the energy. I think that's what happens.
0: Mm, Amplification,
1: right. You know, that's, and and think of it really, uh, I mean, the, the, The fundamental sound of the European church center of a community that way is a bell, the tolling of a bell, you know, Mm -hmm. and with so many layers of meaning, you know, do not ask for whom the bell tolls, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, it has so, but it, it's, you know, and call the faithful to their knees, you know, in the Pink Floyd song, you know, it, it, it has so much resonance and that idea then of the energy has been broadcast.
0: Right, 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 right. You get those from the house tambourines This this yes. idea of it being a kind of, you know, not a tuning fork. It doesn't look like a tuning fork but the same type of concept it also reminded me of a canoe i thought of a canoe when i saw that well
1: that's the, you know that's the heart and soul of their whole deal and they carve their canoes to look like crocodiles because mm. they part worship crocodiles and the young men are ritually scarified or tattooed, you know, in in, rays. To look like crocodiles, yeah. Yeah, to look like crocodiles. And the canoes, of course, and they see this in this just absolutely beautifully simple but immensely rich uh, connection that the canoes are exactly like their big garamut drums, their slip gong drums, and they're one or two man drums. You can of course have them smaller, the idea can be miniaturized, mm-hmm. but they're big, you know, so you've mm-hmm. got like, and that's also, you know, too, like um if with a little boy he can look around a village, say in the Middle Sepic River still. And he can see what he needs to do in life, basically. He needs Mm -hmm. to know how to play a slit gong drum and Mm -hmm. build fire. You know, Mm got to keep the mosquitoes down uh, to a reasonable level. Deal with a canoe, make a canoe, be good in a a canoe. And being good in a canoe there means at eight years old, eight years old, you can cross the Sepik River on a dead straight line. And I don't know how many eight-year-olds in America can even walk in a straight line anymore. Uh, and then there's the-, the I'm, pro- st- I'm
0: still listening to you. I'm just off screen for a moment. But, the but the crocodile listening.
1: tattoo sort of uh, thing. So there's just such a clear sense of, of
2: uh, life purpose structured into, well, the architecture first. I'm getting something very special. I actually have a spirit mask which was made for me uh, slightly north of, of the Middle Sepik River uh, group. There are several major communities well, along the whole stretch of
1: river. But it's it's an example of the kind of beautiful carving. The Sepik is, is famous for its artwork. It's one of the three great centers of a dimensional tactile art in New Guinea. Um, and they are probably, I think, the undisputed masters of, of, of mask and dance costumes. Uh, they do other things like shields and things, but their their masks are just amazingly rich in storytelling capability. And they are, in fact, deep.
2: Uh, their books unto themselves. With uh, Be- This is it. Ooh,
0: look at that. That is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. That's amazing. I was thinking about two things. Number one the canoe shape of the building, the di- the dynamic arches, um, again brings to mind that sense of movement and the idea of architecture as needing to uh, feel as though it's in motion, though it is still stationary and how that might relate to a lot of our buildings which are meant to much more represent a static stable home, a, a place where everything stops a time shelter if you will, maybe the house tambourines are not time shelters. Maybe they're time conduits instead.
1: I think that is beautifully said. I think that that, um, and just to help listen, if you do, if you haven't seen what a house tam, if you can imagine the sail structure of the Sydney Opera House, one of those just pinched up and pulled a little so that it's higher, so that that it's steeper. And the ceiling is is, is hardy, and and then an interior length flowing quite organically, and they're able to achieve an organic level of uh, profile because of just some phenomenal building skills with the, the local materials. You just you couldn't just pop up there and 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 learn that it's a it's it takes some it takes forty or fifty thousand years. But I think that's exactly right. That, that that signature architectural statement emerges from a mind and spirit sense that is very very different than what we find uh, in other cultures, and certainly in the West. I think that the the East is different yet again, but our. Our distance from that, our sense of solidity and a statement of time shelter and uh grandeur that will endure, even though we may ironically be obsessed with po- post-apocalypse, you know, uh, movies and destruction and scenes of ruins. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like the Empire State Building, they were, well, they weren't, you know, they were going to survive King Kong, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at least in the minds of, of the build, That's what that American empire thing is. And the Europeans, geez, I mean, and the proof is on their side. They've survived two world wars, yep.
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: it's just on and on it goes. But there is an alternative approach, which the Sepik River people demonstrate that it is kind of a time conduit it's a time wave it's like a time sort of tunnel it really time tunnel let's go and you know in in um i mean lynch didn't uh think of this this idea it's obviously in the book dune but the guild navigator I've always loved the guild navigator's appearance. It looks very sort of steampunkish. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, this Yeah, the kind
0: of the, the big the big brain bug in the vat. Yeah. Kind of thing, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, and how it appears and it how it uh you know wrinkles or folds time. And I think but that's kind of the experience that uh and there are two things about that. I think that the the there is a sense of of, um, of quiet. Uh, mm-hmm. the The surrounding wildlife sound is always there. So you, but you, there there are sounds of of, of people, and that it's not entirely unmotorized. Some parts are, but there is a powerful sense of. I uh, remember it's it's usually you know pretty hot there. Uh, it can get very cold in the mountains, but this is on the river and it's mosquito country. And it's so the the mood of the somberness or not mm-hmm.
3: somberness,
0: but the hushed awe-inspiring quality. Yeah, the, the, the transcendental time awareness.
2: Yeah, it's
1: there in that Southern hemisphere, you know, below the equator sort of sense.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But then... I think this is what you this would bring you back to the church, just their church. It's impossible to not hear the voices
3: mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm.
1: the masks and the art. It's impossible to understand them and they say the same thing. Yeah. you know yeah. so it's not yeah. simple you know and it isn't quite I mean there is a kind of uh priest or or leader figure. Who is better at interpreting, mm-hmm. and and that's one of the things that older people still traditionally can do a bit. Mm-hmm. But there is a sense that uh,
2: that there are that there is an ongoing community mm-hmm. within that space
1: that is not a space.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I okay. I wrote this down so I would not forget it while you were talking. Uh, first of all, I love the phrase, you know, space, it's not a space. The idea of the time tunnel, whether we are talking about the house tambourines or the mosques, the idea that these buildings, in addition to fostering a sense of spiritual quiet and peace in order to encourage reflection and allow for the entrance of some kind of spirit to inhabit you, whether it's the masks or the Holy Spirit or what have you, that keeping things moving, especially if it could be applied to places of politics, uh, government buildings, schools, what it also does, and I'm focusing very intently now on the time tunnel idea is that it links you very solidly with both the past and the future. You begin to see the holistic picture of not just your lifespan, but the span of all lives. And what I'm thinking is that uh, it puts you in a place, it centers you, the interior of the building, because of its quiet, which is very important, and because of its community of other people, And, you know, you're able to see everything from babies to very much older people. It's still placing you within a, let's say, 70 to 80 year frame, but it's the architecture and very specifically the velocity and dynamism of the architecture that places you outside of that into a wider context. And wouldn't that be great in the face of things like, you know, major decisions to go to war or to... Invest in nuclear power, or to drop a nuclear bomb, or what have you. But like, do you think that a world leader could could drop a bomb from a mosque, right? If their office was in a mosque,
1: right? I don't think they Very could. Interesting question.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you're using the mosques as as emblematic of all of
0: these kinds of correct. As like- as in my in my estimation, the most beautiful. Yes, of, of these types of things.
1: I get you. I get you. I think that's a lovely question. I think it would. I mean, I can't. I can't believe it would. It wouldn't be a lot more difficult to do, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. because of that. And, and you know, it made me think of. of and this is a very interesting paradox. Uh, and oddly enough, there's a there's a, a museum I hear I haven't heard of called the Museum of Paradoxes. And they're hiring a writer. You just made me think about it. Mm, mm -hmm. But the paradox I'm thinking about is uh, there is supposedly at every airport that is an international, that is internationally certified, that they have some space, some physical Mm -hmm. space that is actually not on any sovereign soil that is effectively a purely conceptual space of no man's land. And I, that's an idea that has fascinated me for a long time. but it's hard to explore because it's off limits. And every time I have've I've, I've tried to uh, I've inquire about that at major airports around the world when I' when I' I'm traveling. But one thing that made me think of what you were saying is have you ever gone into one of the prayer rooms? No. Well, there's nothing. in. in, I've gone into maybe six or 10 at different airports just to kind of see what's going on. I've gone into
0: smoking rooms, but not prayer rooms. Right.
1: Well, you know, there's an interesting, I have to say, there's a kind of weird, weird connection. Uh, There's nothing special about them whatsoever. There's nothing that has been done in the ones that I've been in. They're, uh, interdenominational, uh, interfaith, uh, totally neutral, and to some extent, completely token gestures on the part of the airport hosts. And yet, and yet, and I think this is the, the demonstration of what you were asking about the nuclear bomb question. There is something decisively special about them i think mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and it's an it must be entirely human created because it is not inherent in the architecture or the interior decoration mm-hmm. i just can't see that it's it, it's as neutral the ones i've seen have been very very neutral uh, and soulless oddly but there is a kind of atmosphere and mood about them that is nonetheless palpable, you know? And I think that's what we're saying has, what the great churches and cathedrals and mosques and synagogues and temples around the world have done is somehow take that individual human energy, made, harvested the collective energy of a group, a congregation, a faith,
2: and somehow amplified it and i think that is one of the most mysterious things that humans have
1: ever achieved it's not like you know landing or faking a moon landing in nevada or <laughs> Adam or
0: now you're now you're speaking my language
1: you know some of the things that we we accept or uh supposed, you know, examples of human innovation. But it, it is a tremendous collective uh, achievement, I think, as strange and as brutal and as bizarre, whatever the forms the behavior takes, at the architectural and psychological level of the, the sacred wonder moment of peace and collective uh contemplation i think that's just miraculous so to speak
0: i think you're kind of on fire lounging on your couch i think <laughs> i think this is the ideal this is the ideal setting for you yeah. i i love what you said uh i want to know more about the coleridge quote ah, okay
1: well i i thank you i i really 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 love that particular lines. Uh, I do like Coleridge generally. I think he was a crazy nut. And I really appreciate his wonderful confusions about uh German philosophy, which he was obsessed by. And I think was a he apparently would have been one of the most exciting uh completely crazed professors, you know, if you could imagine mm-hmm. that. Plus he'd throw himself down on the ground and wriggle in agony and want laudanum, you know? So he just was all over the place. But that line comes from the rhyme of the ancient mariner. And I think it, it it's such a beautiful line. It occurs to me as, I honestly thought if I ever, um, I used to live next to this really cool old gold rush cemetery. And I thought if I ever was buried, you know, did the whole graveyard tombstone thing. That's what I'd have on it. That would be my epitaph. And I think that that is just a wonderful, mysterious line unto itself. But to me, it kind of captured some of the, the this mood that these sacred structures around the world try to create. There they is an element of edge to them, in a sense. Um, they should mingle with our fears. A
0: bit. Yeah, yeah, fear and trembling. You know, there's
1: nothing wrong. I mean, God, if we're not afraid of of stuff on that scale,
3: mm-hmm.
1: in that domain, well, that's pretty weird. I think that's a measure of mm-hmm. human perversity. Because whatever you plug into that should be overwhelming in some yeah. way. Yeah. So that, it, but it mingles strangely with the fears. And it does welcome you, though.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it—that's the idea of it. And I—I'm. It does sadden me that it. Um, I don't know. It seems like in America, America particularly uh, in the last ten years, that there—well, not just the last ten, but it's escalated—that people talk about not being included. In, in church community, and it's something that church communities of all denominations uh, are really uh, struggling with. Interestingly enough, though, I've noticed that um, around the corner from where I used to live, there was a Catholic church that was big then, but my God, it's just boomed. So some, some places, some faiths, some religious uh, directions are thriving. But, you know, and when I hear people say about, I don't know, not being included or, you know, you think of the American Methodist movement, which was very important to me in, in writing Reverend America. The Methodists had two things going for them in the 19th century. They, that really hit a chord amongst a lot of people, particularly American black people. They were the beginnings of that, although we think of um, often uh, as the Baptist faith is drawing more African-American interest, but it was really the Methodist for two reasons. They had the Methodist songbook, so they were deeply committed to music, but they also had a very strangely uh, anti-architectural idea of no church, (laughs) that you don't need a physical place. It was very much the as right. Christ right. two or three gathered in my name, you know, and well that worked for people who were poor and broke and black who couldn't weren't allowed to congregate at the time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in in one particular space. So it opened up some possibilities in this very counter uh, to the grand cathedrals or you know these these one mosques and synagogues that we've been talking about uh much much more humble if and sometimes not, no building at all the mood is entirely mm-hmm. generated by the the individuals and and
2: you know a tent you know the tent shows yeah. right uh, right But what could be more inclusive than that
1: you know yeah. and i think that that it's strange that that is uh the message that some people feel, and I'm afraid it has one uh, one cause, and it's just it it, it relates to uh, what is perceived to be well, no, it, what is the position uh, in in you know literal terms, fundamentalist terms um, of anti homosexuality, mm-hmm. and that sort of then is. I think that, don't you think that's the underlying push? I mean, there's a lot of push against, well, what was seen to be just the strict moralism mm-hmm. Uh That pervaded American church. But you know, honestly, if you look back in the history, that's been gone for a long time. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty much on the surface. That the that was the official behavior, but the unofficial behavior was out in the open, really, for everyone. Well, I
0: think that's why the official behavior was there. Because I think that the experience of going to a church or a mosque, and I have felt this way, I used to go to church as a kid, even the boring ones going to church is a very erotic experience there's a lot of girls around yeah uh, i mean like there's this feeling of like the spirit you know i used to get you know 11 12 years old i would get really horny in church just because just you know i'm surrounded by girls and there's all this you know kind of yeah uh, feel you know what i mean and so i oh, think that and i think that the anti uh, homosexual tendencies that church churches had was for a long time, a kind of, you know, sort of sadomasochistic wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of thing, because I think they were, I think that was part of the eroticism of it. I've heard a lot of, uh, really smart gay thinkers talk about how in recent times, uh, you know, (laughs) I don't know how to put. I mean, they're obviously still gay, but how being gay is a little bit less fun now because it's so accepted.
2: Yeah, part of part of
0: yes, yeah, part of the fun of it was you know meeting a random guy in the bushes in a park and having sex with him. That was part of the thrill of the whole thing, and I think you can apply that same framework to a church because I think that there is a an eroticism. That is both overt in terms of the ecstasy and you know the you know let Jesus enter you and that kind of thing. That's not as subtle as they might think it is, but it's also covert in terms of all of that repression. See, my thought is that the repression is there to make everything hotter.
3: Well,
2: (laughs) look,
1: there's a great body of literature and an enormous body of music. You could say. American popular music really gets lit on fire with that idea, so I don't, I, th- I couldn't agree more. I think that's absolutely right. So that's not what's finally driving the the slow dereliction of these mm-hmm. sacred spaces, particularly in America. I, it, it, it it's part of it, but it, it's, I think we. Also have to look at, well, just general uh, laziness, the collapse of communities at large. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the feminist revolution leading to more women working, a kind of atomization of of traditional family units, but also really just the hunger for entertainment and addiction to entertainment, Mm -hmm. consumerism. Because when I look around at what secular society has tried to make into sacred spaces that are well outside any religious and are kind of anything goes, you've got some real confusions. You know, you've got uh, certain you know neighborhoods, say the French Quarter and Marty mm-hmm, Broad mm-hmm. in New Orleans not exactly sort of kid-friendly, you know, (laughs) Hollywood or Las Vegas. And we haven't, but we haven't really invented anything new. And given, you know, this emphasis on wokeness today and how the Disney empire is bending over, not backwards, they might be just bending over forwards, uh Mm -hmm, to get mm -hmm. reamed by whoever you know uh wants them to change lyrics
0: or to become ever more woke there was a there was a fucking i'm sorry to interrupt you there was a a warning because i turned on the 1992 film aladdin to watch with my son it was one of my favorites i watched it 50 times when i was a kid uh and they they put a warning on there about uh
2: Potential offensive Arabic stereotypes within Aladdin. You know, just to, just quickly, do you know what the prefix "stereo" actually means? A lot of people don't know uh, that.
0: Uh, multiple. I'm thinking of mono and stereo. So,
2: well,
1: that's that's uh, that's a, a connotative build on it, but the original prefix it's it, it's dimensionality, solidity. Authenticity,
0: right? Okay, real. yeah, yeah.
1: Real. Dimensionality makes sense, yeah. So the idea of a stereotype is kind of really confused. We mean a kind of cardboard cut out generalization, but in literal terms, historically, it would have meant exactly the opposite, and it would have meant something uh, even more material and actual
0: than an archetype. I, I really like that though, because I've said uh, multiple times on Agitator that stereotypes are good because they exist for they a reason add, they add dimension right yeah. it's it's a dimensionalizing thing and they do exist for a reason um but i was, I, I interrupted you because you were talking about disney bending over uh to you know take whatever was coming their way uh well it, it got me thinking of uh the uh i've got the
4: book here too somewhere
1: um or i've got many i i'm I'm obsessed with roller coasters and amusement parks. That was one of my huge, uh, and I'm still still really excited about that. But I think that the the dreamland era of Coney Island and the complete Mm -hmm. melting pot and the levels of entertainment, the dimensionality of that, I think that might've been a peak moment in cultural convergence that really, really was working. And everything, not that it didn't have enormous problems, but it was it was the social, the secular sacred spot of freedom and possibility, and over being overwhelmed with stimulus and offering yeah. yeah. things. And in the collective, hypnotized presence of many other people total trance state very much you know like uh the religious ceremonial activities in a different register but nothing has compared to that since Mm -hmm. i don't Mm -hmm. think anything has that level of innocence of it was institutional sure big business yes but it wasn't corporate in the sense that, that everything is now, you know, it just had, yeah. but in any case, I don't see what the, the woke secular movement of today is doing on any level, whether it's civic planning, landscape design, or architecture, or just even allowing some kind
2: of secular mm-hmm version of the sacred space who was it who said this recently that gender became the soul for the secular Ooh, i don't know that's a great line
0: i can't remember who said this oh michael schellenberger said it on joe okay. rogan um as a side note by the way have you do you have you seen the film little odessa no. from 1994 directed by James Gray it takes place in uh, Brighton Beach it's about a hitman who goes to visit his uh, Russian immigrant family it's this great kind of dark drama film it's got uh, Tim I Roth
2: neighborhood in Brooklyn. I love that neighborhood
0: yeah yeah it's got uh, Tim Roth and Edward Furlong are the, are the two leads in that movie uh, but it's got it's you know it's in the Coney Island area Well, yeah.
1: It's it's, it's only a couple of train stops away. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, that, that just, you know, that was in the mid nineties and that was already kind of capturing the, uh, the kind of decay of that area, you know, in a really interesting way. Um, But the, the gender being the new soul for the secular, I think, I think that their attempts to create a new soul or secularize. I think that's why it's so confused. I think that's why this whole thing just feels kind of off to people like us. Specifically people like us who have been, you know, kind of lifelong democrats, left-leaning, uh very open obviously to different cultures and ideas. Uh why people like us who you would think would be the most primed for this kind of stuff recoil at it. And it's because it's such
2: a graceless, uh aesthetically unappealing normalization
0: of these kind of weird things that we love. Right. Like if it was all weirder and a bit more spiritual and a bit more uh far out, I think we'd I think we'd be right on board. We'd be like, okay, cool. Yeah, right on. You know, they've got these crazy clubs where like, all these gay you know trans people whatever they all go and they live stream it and they're dressing up in strange costumes and having sex with each other we'd be like okay that's cool but like a children's book for a four-year-old about this kind of thing that's where where it's it's done in that kind of cartoony like do 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 like it feels like propaganda
1: well, it feels like propaganda because it is
0: propaganda. because it is propaganda and exactly.
1: propaganda is by definition simple-minded it's it's mm-hmm. way down the scale of sophistication that's just and it's way down the scale of any kind of innocence obviously it's completely rhetorically corrupt that's that's what yeah. a good definition of propaganda is and it 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 really because you and I do know about other cultures around the world that are so, well, apparently chaotic or should be chaotic with immense contradictions that their ceremonial imagination somehow holds it all together in these just bubbling dynamics of possibility that individuals can navigate. And if they weren't exposed to the nonsense of principally American Entertainment and media frameworks and mm. organized product. Mm-hmm. They mm. would they would really have it made, you know. That's the new colonialist damage, is is the American propaganda machines. I that- mean,
3: you
0: can really trace it all back to Disney World as being this kind of or maybe you could trace it back to those ready-made suburban towns with that were are stocked with mannequins. That were meant to be blown up by the bomb,
2: yeah. I mean, any
1: mannequins.
0: Yeah, yeah. Maybe you could trace it to that in Disney <laughs> World, but it's this. Yeah, it's this. Whatever you're getting at, I think Disney might be where we need to go next because I think that might be the key to not just you know what's wrong with architecture today, but what's off about everything today it might be disney is the main nerve and i
1: say that living in las vegas you know
0: i say that as a big fan of a lot of disney films i thought i think they made i'm re-watching a lot of them with gus and they're great but but
1: (laughs) well and also you know things evolve you know nothing has has really remained you know static in that world i mean by god you know, they've they've absorbed all these other giant companies. Sometimes they've expanded their... Release. Yeah, they're Star
0: Wars now. They have Star Wars.
1: Well, Star Wars is a nice fit with them, isn't it? It's almost... I mean, it's just perfect. I mean, you can't... Mm-hmm. I, it's almost hard to believe that Disney didn't create Star Wars.
2: You know? True, yeah. I think that's yeah. a good
1: place to, uh, to head next time because... Uh, it's also a nice time with something that uh, I don't know if if we've talked about if you're as big a fan of it, but I'm a, I, and I'm just a devoted student of of the world's
0: fairs. Mm-hmm. I think. Oh, I love world's fairs. Yeah, Ooh, I, I was in uh, when I was. I, we can talk about this more next time. But when I was in uh, Busan, South Korea, they are going to host the 2024 World's Fair. And we were there in 2019. So they were already getting ready for it. And we could see all the construction because this is a multi-year thing. So I can, they were having a sandcastle competition while we were on the beach.
1: I I love, I mean, I think there's something just totally, totally, I'm glad we're not through with architecture because there's so many things we still have to talk. I I haven't talked about Portuguese architecture and I'm doing this thing about, speaking to these people who are in post-colonial studies, they know absolutely nothing about what they're talking about. But the focus that I'm gonna take is on Portuguese architecture in three different parts of the world, in Dakar, in, in West Africa, Senegal, Macau, and parts of the Philippines, because yeah, they might've been terrible colonial, they might've done a lot of bad things, but the architecture survives and it is so beautiful and so important. It's like some of the European architecture in, in in Vietnam, you know, It's just so part of the whole mix now. it would just be, kind of almost sinful to, to overlook it or to deny it mm-hmm, or those mm-hmm. or to to have to apologize for it. you know It's just as bigger than that. But onward to Disneyland next time. Meanwhile, meanwhile, we have a date with
0: Destiny in Big Bend National. In Big Bend. All right. Let me get this
2: out here. This might be a little lengthy. That's what she said. All right. (laughs) So. Terrence, Sundog, Latamore.
0: Decides to park at the Tierra del Sol base camp in Big Bend. While he's there, he sets up camp and meets his fellow campers. The first is a tech entrepreneur for a social media company and his Instagram model girlfriend. The second is a gun YouTuber. So this man has made a lot of money by modeling and firing different guns on YouTube. He also meets a former Viet Cong Vietnam veteran. And finally, finally, he meets a gay couple with three children.
2: Whoa. (laughs) Whoa. So the
0: way that I see this, to paraphrase a lot, uh, if I were to be writing this as a screenplay, Uh, I would write this in a very kind of David Mamet, Quentin Tarantino style, lots of very long fireside conversations, because I want this all to take place in one night with this cast of characters uh, sort of all talking to each other and the different alliances and tensions uh, oscillating between the disparate groups of people. At the end of the conversation, as the tech entrepreneur gets more and more drunk and talks more and more about his plans to sort of automate all aspects of living and get people more and more into AI girlfriends. Uh, Terrence decides that he's the one who probably has to die, right? So he flips his coin and it comes up heads, which means, yeah, that'll be the one to go. So the next day, they all decide, Having gotten into arguments, but largely developed a small community, they all decide to go on a hike together. And at a certain point, Terrence pulls his gun. Right, he pulls his gun and he's going to kill the tech entrepreneur. Well, this whole time, the Viet Cong vet has been decided has decided to kill him because of a story Terrence told the night before about a very specific village that he rated that still haunts him to this day, that the Viet Cong vet recognizes as his family's village. Nice. Nice. Now the gun nut was the one who really kind of idolizes Terrence because the gun nut is in his mid twenties. Uh, he sees himself as Terrence, but he's very much a, a zoomer product of America and, you know, sort of gun fetishism. So he kind of has latched onto Terrence as like a mentor father figure. So now we have a Mexican standoff because the gun nut has pulled on the Viet Cong veteran. And in the midst of all this, a rattlesnake bites one of the gay couple and he falls into the dirt, pulls the rattlesnake off, throws it, and they all have to make a choice. Do they continue with their Mexican standoff or do they help the gay couple? Well, in this telling, this is exciting. They're looking this at is. them. They're looking back. The kids are screaming. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. And in the midst of this, the tech entrepreneur has snuck up behind Terrence and has whacked him on the back of the head on the head with a log. Right. And when he falls, the gun nut shoots the tech entrepreneur in the head, right? The Viet Cong vet turns and shoots the gun nut. It's chaos. It's absolute chaos. And in the midst of it all, Wally the dog has found the rattlesnake and killed it. And as Wally is shaking and killing the rattlesnake, the poison begins to seep out of the gay man's leg and he, and he is
2: cured. Dear me, that was like a really,
1: you know, I could imagine uh, Tom Stoppard, the British playwright, you know, and and the screenwriter. He has, I think he did this a couple of times, but uh, Dogs Hamlet and Cahoots Macbeth are uh, full versions of both plays. But then they're they're acting it like really fast in super abbreviated terms. And I could imagine what you've just run down. If it was done as a film, you get the the whole kind of legato, mm-hmm. real time, real pacing, sort of the equivalent of like four, four time. It's unfolding. And then suddenly we get an overlap, but of of, of a repeat of it, but it's going faster and faster. Mm-hmm. But each time it goes a little till we get to the end. But it's just this Mm -hmm. wonderful Mm -hmm. sort of uh, campground uh, toilet block serenade of of sort of a junkyard symphony, you know?
0: Yeah, Yeah. I I feel like that would make a good screenplay. That would make a nice little, a tight like 90 page screenplay that you could film really cheap. And that uh, people might actually get into, you know, like that last scene with the guns being pulled, the squeals of the kids in the background, you know, like you could get some real, some real tension going. And you could keep it going too. I mean, that doesn't necessarily have to be the end of it. That could be this could be the first 30 pages of the of the film.
2: Well, you know, there are two great sort of setup
1: furnishing ideas, I think, in storytelling. One is the really claustrophobic interior, whether that be completely private, the person just going inside, or uh, say like the world of the first alien, uh, you know, movie, yeah. that ancient uh, spaceship, very industrial looking, but very, very tight. Or alternatively, you blow things up and you show multiple, a big cast of characters. And the fact that different people have very different and sometimes conflicting strategies, Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of Mm -hmm. one or the other, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like that you chose the other. made me think, too, of um, the novelist, the late Russell Banks. Uh, One of his early books was published by the Fiction Collective, you know. Liddy's mm-hmm. uh, connected with that uh, Stephen Graham Jones published they're, they've done some good things but it's called Trailer Park and it's a really beautiful uh, collection of stories that are interrelated because they're all set in the same trailer park mm-hmm. but it's a nice idea and he uh kind of before he, he got started writing these giant novels and I liked that book I haven't thought of that
0: in a long time you made me think of it again so well done cool. Awesome! I'm glad you liked it. Do you have a tip for us today, or perhaps a tool, whichever one you like to start with?
1: Yeah, I'll start with a tool. We're, we're uh, yeah, the blowgun idea and the blowgun target. Uh, and I was thinking about um, Zeno the important Greek philosopher. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this will all mesh together, but it has really struck me that the target, the blowgun targets that I'm using are not the real targets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not if we take target to mean the primary goal, the primary goal I've realized, and this took me a a lot of shooting to realize this the primary goal is to reduce the time of the dart to target
3: mm-hmm.
1: okay the target's kind of got to be assumed a little bit you know mm-hmm. you have to factor that in but the basic physics of it is shorten the time of the arrow in flight so as to reduce the number of forces impinging on it you know That really, I think, makes good practical sense. So the tool, I think, is to try to apply that thinking as broadly as you can. And there are a couple of sub-lessons. Synonyms can be helpful, but they can also be deceptive. Target and goal may not be the same thing. And to actually hit the target, it may be a lot more effective to start thinking of that process. And I recommend that people do go back to Zeno. Zeno's arrow paradox, which is really the uh, the paradox of infinite divisibility, is only one, it's one of his most famous, but it's only one of many, many, many that he came up with. And his thinking is, uh, well, it was good enough for Plato, it should be good enough for us. He was also a really humble genius. He really thought he was just coming up with some interesting scenarios. To defend Parmenides. Mm -hmm,
3: mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: And we should all have as good lieutenants and greyhounds as Zeno was for Parmenides. Even Richard Dawkins isn't that, it's in that category with Darwin, but Mm -hmm. Zeno did some really great work. Um, And it's a chance to think about motion versus changing location. And going back to our time theme, can duration be composed of instants? I think all of those things are worth thinking about, and that's why I really encourage some sort of target or aiming practice physically in our lives. But to wrap it up, as we encourage morphing nouns into verbs, which is something you and I have emphasized repeatedly, try to verb desires and objectives into processes and priorities it's a little bit clunky at the start because you kind of get that checklist sort Mm of mm -hmm, linear sequence but groove into that as smoothly as possible and when it starts to feel more like a dance or more like a vibrating waveform than a checklist you'll feel it and a lot of smoother operations will come into play. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of a convoluted tool, but I think people get it. Take Mm -hmm. something that has a real physical truth, actuality, materialness to it. I've said the blowgun target, try to apply that metaphorically, but find something as physical and actual in your own life to base that on. And think of, of that whole interaction as process, not as product in the sense of, well, this is the result. Actually enjoy the steps to the result. Maybe a simpler way to put it now
2: that I think of it.
1: Okay, the tip is 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 very straightforward and it's something we have touched on a little bit before, uh, in the sense of seeing a silent movie. But it really, really strikes me for just a couple of days, 48 hours. Don't actively listen to or watch anything produced after 1945. Mm-hmm. It'd be done. You can do it. Everyone can do it. 48 hours. Do instead actively watch at least two films from before 1930. Then spend just a few minutes with at least three photographs taken before 1900. Mm. Some time parameters there, a little bit of specificity. Take note of any technical descriptions of of the process, production process of the materials involved in the photographs. Maybe think a little bit about the the obvious categories of portrait and still life. Why are those the obvious categories Mm. before 1900? Here is an enormous bonus for you, David, and for listeners. We were going to have to follow this guy up. I hadn't heard of him before, but in thinking about uh, great early films, and I highly recommend Ballet Mécanique. If you haven't seen that, you must. Anemic cinema by Marcel Duchamp is a must. I'm. It's hypnotic. It's deprogramming. Two must see films. Ballet Mechanique and Duchamp's Anemic Cinema. Georges Melies, you know, uh, his earlier fantastic pieces, not just The Voyage to the Moon, but The Man with the India Rubber Head. You start to see really what's going on, where f- photography and film created these, uh, talk about a plurality of worlds, And now we are completely lost in them and so hypnotized that we don't really recognize it even more. But in looking at a list of films, I discovered that Gregory Bateson, when he was, he's one of our heroes for listeners who haven't checked, uh, his amazingly diverse career. At one point when he was uh, investigating schizophrenia, he got partnered up with Talk about a Renaissance man, but a polymath
0: gone wrong. Weldon Keys. Have you ever heard of him? I have. I have. have? I'm trying to think of where I have. Well,
1: he did everything poet, critic, Mm -hmm. filmmaker. I mean, he was kind of everywhere and it didn't quite hit the big well. He's amazing. He's amazing. I'm going to dedicate more time to study, but they did films together mm. like hand to eye coordination from a, but from a mental health point of view, I so want to see those films. But anyway, that's my tip. Go back and just have a little bit of completely time shelter protected exposure to pre-1900 photography and pre-1945 films with no contemporary exposure over two tactical days.
0: Weldon Harry Weldon Keys, fit, born February 24th, 1914,
2: disappeared. Yes, I, that's the part I love! <laughs> July 18th,
0: 1955, was an American poet, painter, literary critic, novelist, playwright, jazz pianist, short story writer and filmmaker 41 years old he disappeared his car was found on the other side the Rin county
1: side of golden gate the golden gate bridge
3: Mm. i Mm.
1: just love every single thing about that he's my new lost explorers hero of of the month at least i'm glad you dig it i mean very, very peculiar character. But Gregory Bateson just got around to doing everything from the intellectual and social investigation point of view. And I mean, in addition to being, you know, an anthropologist in New Guinea and working with alcoholism and schizophrenia and linguistics. He was also doing these films, and I just want to be able to track one down. Mm-hmm,
0: just...
3: mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So, listeners, for the dream today, we have something very special. Chris recorded a dream of his on April 4th uh, as he was waking up, and you'll hear it as it plays at the end of this episode he's got this great gravelly uh tone to his voice i i sent him a text when he sent me the file and i said your voice sounds incredible in this it's just it's like asmr and he's recounting a dream where he and i are have broken down in the australian not necessarily outback but he goes on a very like we're leaking transmission fluid and that leads to a cigar chomping man uh bringing him through a sort of building that reminds him of a place in melbourne and it it goes on to there to to people with the strange (laughs) disease that makes them vomit aliens and it's it's really a lot of fun so chris what what's your thought process on this on this new venture in 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 the dream segment
1: Well, thank you for, for being enthusiastic about it, because uh, I'm not proposing this every time, but I I do really work hard at recording dreams and have for really all my adult life, you know? Uh, And I think it's just, for me, it's unavoidable. I just, I'm so curious about it. It just seems this rich treasure house of, of, of mythos that, that I can draw on or just, just wonder about and and we because we so little of it survives sometimes the waking experience that whatever you can salvage is kind of precious but I wanted listeners to uh to hear something as it's being
0: made and fumbled through you can you can hear you fighting sleep through it you'll yeah. pause for a moment and you'll go ah yeah and I yeah. think I'm there really was not something... conscious. yeah i'm really it's really it's really cool to listen to i liked it a lot
1: and it's an example you know we dave and i talk about magic practices in our lives and we're we're very serious we're joyful about them but we we really mean what we say and we know that they are a discipline that are that's sometimes difficult uh they require a real real commitment and any kind of of process uh, really does, but I think the more, the higher the the wonder stakes, the possibility mm-hmm. of insight into oneself, into other people, into the world, into the notion of insight. Then sometimes the harder you have to work for it, and mm-hmm. it does sound stumbling and and just groggy and disconnected and you know, we're fighting for
0: some sense of coherence. And you said you had a lady over too, and she was freaked out by it?
1: Not not on that occasion, but this has happened, yeah, before. This happened throughout, you know, a couple of marriages. You know, it was... (laughs) uh and and girlfriends at various times it's like
0: what the hell are you doing (laughs) yeah
1: it's it's annoying it can be scary it could be I mean well not so much scary in the sense of is there a burglar in the house but more who is this person I'm sleeping with (laughs) you know Um, who's this person I'm bonking and why are they (laughs) obsessed with recording their dreams Yeah, yeah but (laughs) <laughs> I, I I have that kind of uh well, it's a commitment. I and I believe that that if you're gonna do something, you're really gonna be in it and mm. and really sacrifice for it. Mm. But the rewards I think are occasionally there. And for me, and what this is moving towards in uh the book that I'm working on is working on one aspect of the cognition experience that we can have any influence over. And that's our own associative networks. The the chains of thought, the rivers of possibility and decision that we might have some influence over uh, as opposed to our social environments, the larger media scape, circumstance, whatever we call that there are a few ways we could do that and we get it by these little glimpses into the dream thing. So you got to uh, have uh, the courage and the discipline to sort of, you know, kind of make yourself foolish and vulnerable and, and, but get the stuff down. And I, I hope people enjoy this. This is just an experiment. We're welcome for feedback. Um,
0: Yeah. 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 By the way, as you were, uh, talking just now <clears throat> the anemic cinema just began playing on youtube because i called it up and i guess it just now loaded so there was this great soundtrack
2: oh. to, to, yeah. to you talking because yeah. things
0: were playing through my headphones oh, bonus. Uh, bonus, bonus yeah um but uh all right well i guess we'll play that
2: now Save all changes.
4: Very vivid, intense dream about, for one thing, being off on a trip with David in a new car, which was was actually a little bit underslung. Maybe picking up on the lowrider conversation with Vince. But a Chevrolet Impala, but new, newly done that comes to mind. Being up in central Victoria in very strange terrain. Like Wobat State Forest meets the New Jersey uh, um, marshes, pine barrens. And getting chased, getting chased by bad guys, we later tell some good people trying to help us that we'd startled a drug deal and had gotten chased, but I can't remember the quite the details of that, but transmission fluid is pouring out and the lights don't work. And, uh, we end up getting the car to a very strange, uh, we uh, well, back in a city environment next to this pizza, late night pizza place and a garage that's closed. And the guy drives us to... Uh, A garage situation that is really the old neighbors of Friarstown. This kind of fantasy family, uh, very large, and they've got now this enormous compound of crazy houses. I think I've dreamed about these people before in a really uh, evil sort of context. But here they're good and one of the the brothers is sort of in his 40s or 50s who's heir to the whole thing um, is is smoking a cigar and leading me on a tour of the compound and is going to help get the car sort of right and maybe get me back because I'm with David David's been left up up country and I see that I look across the neighbors and it's my old house in Firestown, but it's on a lake now. And there are all these animals African wildlife, lions and elephants. And I wonder how they get fed. And my guy with the scar, so they just forage. And the problem is the heat. And although we're in Australia, Ronald Reagan is one of the guys in uh, hanging out in the lodge house of these formerly evil, now good neighbors. And I wonder if any of the people with him are secret service. Oh, there's such a strange mix of, uh, there was another house situation in Melbourne that, uh, It's actually someplace here. It's very, it's a mix of, of of these neighborhood things, these rich transpositions of neighbors, neighborhoods, but also the people too. That's a crossover. And and none of the the neighborhoods really make sense. But I'm seeing connections that lie below the surface. It's these little things that you notice. In passing, maybe want you know traveling that you uh, that don't just fit into your normal pattern. This sits with my memory ideas. Sometimes the things just a little bit outside, um, but that have some resonance with what you experience. You build whole futures and lives around that. Uh. The strange house in this neighborhood, and I can pin down some of the reference points of where it comes from, definitely parts of Melbourne, an amalgam of them, Uh, for some reason I think to Ballarat, but also connections to oddly Walnut Creek, even Boulder City. There's something architecturally I'm drawing on that connects. And it's part of one of my composite cities that definitely is a staging ground for many, many dreams. And I come back to it and slightly expand on it. But there's a woman living in the house. There's a brief conversation with her, what it's like to live in one of these houses. There's some historic significance. And the, the reason for checking up is something to do with some young people who have come down with some kind of strange disease condition I can't recall what the inciting incident or if I'd been through it and my there's a female partner involved in this part of it um, possibly something to do with some underwater Sadori or some sort of encounter with something potentially alien as in a kind of a movie sense but what was really just very bizarre is people start vomiting up uh, these strange creatures and there's some guy who may be linked to one of the characters in Twin Peaks Who vomits up a small, but nonetheless pretty substantial thing to vomit, translucent orange frill necked alligator.